Hello and welcome to the super colorful original telecommunicated transmission, otherwise known as Scottcast. Welcome to a little experimental bonus episode I'm going to put out there for little to no reason at all. A little bonus episode called From the Desk of the Sound Guy. On these episodes, I'm going to come to you directly. With no co-hosts, not even a Kyle. Well, Kyle's here. But he's not supposed to be on the mic. I'm going to come to you guys... I'm going to speak my mind. I'm going to give you a little taste of what it's like in the life of Scott. What I'm thinking about. What I'm watching. Today, I've got five little bits of media I want to talk about. And I've got a little special thing I learned for the last thing. So without further ado, let's just get into it. Are you excited? I'm excited. I've recently watched a new show, I think it's on Netflix, called Penny Dreadful. Maybe it's not new. It's new to me. You know what it's like. You're just browsing through these endless frickin' posters on the internet. All these algorithmic suggestions just vomited at you. And you see the same one again and again and again. Until finally... You're like, ah, fuck it. What else is on? And you click it. That was my experience with Penny Dreadful. I had no idea what it was about, but the description intrigued me. It was basically the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, but new. And by that I mean they use public domain characters to flesh out their universe, such as Dorian Gray, Frankenstein, Dracula, stuff like that. And they spin a whole new tale of woe and misery. Penny Dreadful, apparently, was the name of these pulp trade books sold in England with lurid and and macabre tales. Macabre? Macabre? Whatever. And so the illusion points to its TVMA rating, which is a little crazy. By that I mean they have a lot of fun stuff in this show. Like uh, a lot of dicks, for instance. There's a there's more dicks in this show than I've seen in my life. And I don't even know how it happened. You get to see the monster of Frankenstein's monster. That's like the first thing you see. You see his dick before you see his face. I had to rewind to make sure that was true. And there it is. And it's not like these are excited dicks. These are all floppy, flaccid things buried in like an enormous dome of bush. Like little little eggs in a nest. <laughs> So I don't know why they're there besides, like, they wanted to have the nudity rating on the TVMA, but they didn't want to, like, exploit women or something. I don't think you can show a hard penis in a nationwide setting. 
I think that's still considered pornography. Like, you could show nudity in a movie. You could show boobs and butts and floppy penises. But you cannot show an erect penis. A penis at attention. That's explicit. Floppy! It's little. It's fun. It's funny. It's silly. It's like, oh, that guy, he's got his Johnson out. But erect, that's, that's aggressive. Don't want that. So Penny Dreadful, the most cocks and corpses in any movie released in, say, I'd say the past 10 years. So after you're watching all that, you're going to want to get some good sleep in. Right? Because all those cocks are going to wear you out. And this is what I did last night. There's this amazing documentary on the HBO machine about the Celts. Now, I put it on, and I was excited. Because Celtic history, that's a pretty cool era of history. And the first thing they say is that we know next to nothing about the Celts. Good start. Keep going. And it's just a bunch of Irish people talking about artifacts and walking through meadows and talking about the oppression of the Celts by the Roman hands. So naturally, I was browsing Amazon the entire time. I got myself a little voice recorder for memos uh, so that I can, when I'm driving around and I have an idea, say like a turn of phrase that I want to remember, like, oh, that's witty. Like, for instance, I wrote a turn of phrase recently. Let me find it. Oh, that man's the smartest guy he knows. I like that. That's a good little turn of phrase, saying that somebody is both alone and arrogant. Now, I have these little witticisms, and that one I managed to be able to capture. But a lot of the time, before I get to my notebook, say I'm driving or something like that, I completely forget it. It's just completely gone. It's blank. And I lose it. I lose the idea. So I got this little recorder that supposedly I could just press a quick button, say it, done. Click, done. No loading, no settings, no none of that bullshit. Because I don't need any of that bullshit. Like, I've got a lot of recording devices. The phone's a recording device. I'm talking into a recording device. But all of these devices require a time, like booting. Like, the phone is absurd because it's got, like, that's the thing that everyone's like, oh, why don't you just record voice memos on your phone? You know how long it takes to get to the voice memo section on any given phone? I've got it set up so that, like, it's a, it's a shortcut right on the front screen. So as soon as I get the phone unlocked, which requires some fucking crazy pattern as always because there's banking apps on the thing now and all that crap, it's like I need a pin code just to start my voice recorder. So I start my pin code, I get in, I click the button that's right there right away because I set it up that way. And even then, like it takes like a few seconds, like five, 10 seconds for it to load up and start recording. Then I say what it is. And the only way I can stop recording is if I press a very small button on the upper left-hand portion of the screen, and I'm a right-handed individual, so 
you have to stretch your hand to a very small, minuscule little icon, press check, then press back again so it saves. And this is just for a voice memo. So I need to get rid of that because I need to capture these wonderful turns of phrases I have in my head. So I got a little voice recorder that is just one-click affair. Recording. Done. Keep it on the run. Yeah. And that's what I'm doing. So that's my review of the Celts. It was so boring that I had a completely different train of thought while my melatonin set in. And as soon as I placed my stupid order, I was ready to go to bed. So I wake up, and I'm in my house. And it's quarantine. I haven't had visitors in here for a while. But it's the cleanest it's ever been. And I realize now that the clutter that I keep around myself, like boxes stacked around, uh, books everywhere, that is all remnants of feeling like I'm not alone here. Because when I have those things around, it's like I'm picking up after myself constantly. So I'm constantly like uh, annoyed at myself and being like, ah, such a slob, fix it, but also mess it up. And it's like I have this dual personality constantly chasing after itself, like a snake eating its own ass. (laughs) So, So I wake up today and... This weekend, I cleaned my apartment in every single crevice and corner because Sabelle was going to come over, and the plans fell through because of some tire issues. But I woke up this morning, and my entire apartment was completely clean and sterile, everything in its right place. It looked like a mature person's place, and there was this emptiness everywhere, and that bothered me. It was quiet. I could hear the fan clicking as it rotated slightly off axis. You could hear the interstate. You could hear people shuffling through the snow out front. It was entirely too lonely. So I needed atmosphere. And that's where lo-fi music comes in. That's my next thing. Lo-fi music. Look it up on Spotify. Play any playlist. There's no such thing as a good lo-fi artist. I think lo-fi music is just one of those times where like a genre exists and pops up. It can't go past a certain point just by virtue of what it is, but it can be reached by a lot of people. So there's like so much lo-fi kind of atmospheric beats on Spotify that do nothing to offend your mind. It's peace and quiet without the quiet. It's just peace permeating the atmosphere. And I played it, and it was wonderful. The space filled up, the emptiness was banished, and my heart seemed settled and my soul rested for the first time in a while. Lo-fi music, awesome stuff. I was so rested that I started reading Ulysses again. Yeah, James Joyce. It's one of the most difficult pieces of literature to read 
and I've attempted it about a hundred times. I think I might have actually read it when I pieced it all together, because I like to read it like this. I'll just read a random chapter of it. It's The whole story takes place over a day, and it's kind of the thing with James Joyce is that he brings the mundane into the fine art. Like, he wants average moments to look like heroic tasks, and he imbues even the most subtle things with symbolism and grand meaning. And it's great. What I'm saying here is James Joyce is very good for making your boring life seem heroic. <laughs> and that's what I've been reading lately, and it's been making my clean house and, and my uh, even even some of the quirkier things like the little dinosaurs are hanging around and the, and the cardboard boxes from Amazon and uh, the little cat toys and the cat itself makes everything seem like some sort of epic order. Like every day I go through is this odyssey of adventure and intrigue where at the end there will be a self-realization and an actualization and a quiet order in a chaotic world. So it's a good book. So it's great for self-aggrandizement too. And I need that. And I think more people should put more effort into their art kind of like that. Like have a purpose for what you're creating. You know, me and Sabelle went to the DIA over the weekend. We had a fantastic time looking at all this amazing art. We saw some concept cars from uh, Detroit's vaults for GM. We saw fine art from the 17th through 20th century. We saw the photographs of a man named Russ. I forgot his last name, but you should Google it. It's on. It's at the DIA right now, so it's like one of the things they're doing. Um, and we watched all this art before our eyes pass as we walked through the halls, and it was beautiful. But when we had dinner that night, we were listening to some music, and she had like a random country playlist on, and one of these songs was... You Are My Sunshine, but it was the slowest tempo, You Are My Sunshine, you have ever heard in your life. And not only that, they repeated that same eight-line verse at least a hundred times with solos. It was like a 10-15 minute song where the beat was like, You are my sunshine, my only sunshine, you make me, okay, see, I can't even do it because I keep speeding up. And for the first little bit, we were listening to it. We didn't even notice it, right? But after a while of like seven, ten minutes of the slowest you are, my sunshine, you've ever heard, you get to thinking 
who had that idea? Let's play You Are My Sunshine for 15 minutes in the most slow, mournful way possible. Like, I get there's, like, a little tinge of sadness and, like, don't take my sunshine away. But, come on. No one really gets so emotional over You Are My Sunshine that they need to, like, wail on a banjo for 15 minutes while playing it. A much more respectable idea that no algorithm will give you, even though it is an amazing idea and beautiful, at least to me, is playing You Are My Sunshine the quickest possible way, which is singing it just the one verse, no beginning, no end, as fast as possible. So I'm going to do that for you right now. You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy when skies are gray. You'll never know, dear, just how much I love you. So please don't take my sunshine away. I'm going to speed that up in post, and it's going to be excellent. But you'll never hear that on Spotify. Because that would mean, oh, I'm playing a seven-second song. Oh, that doesn't meet the threshold for Spotify's royalty program. Oh, I guess you don't get to have your distribution. See? People need to stop attaching monetary gain to their work as some sort of metric. There is no metric. It is but folly and systems made of mice and men. All right. So now I'm on the second part of the podcast. Recently, I've learned a little thing about Kuntian ethics. A man named Emmanuel Kunt thought of it up. And yes, I'm saying that name right, apparently. I was told that in college by the professor, that, hey, this guy's name is Kant. It's spelled K-A-N-T, and it's German from, like, 18th century, and it's pronounced Kunt. It's only been very recently, uh, how do you say, Americanized as can't? 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 I think is what they're going. But, no, that's K-A-H-N-T. His name is K-A-N-T, and the German pronounced Kant. So, Kantian morality. One of the few times you should want to be a Kant. Immanuel Kant outlined the basics of morality in, like, I, I think the first non-religious way uh, ever. I don't know much about this. I just read it recently. And I've come up with a top 10 list of things to do to be a cunt in today's world. So, to be a cunt in today's world. The first Kantian ethic. Don't treat people as means. Treat them as an end in themselves. It's very true. If you're getting, like, some fast food, right... Don't treat the people in the fast food machine as the machine. They are but subjecting themselves to the machine and the machinations therein for the wage. And they are as dignified as you are. So you say thank you into the box as it yells out at you. And you say thank you as you uh, get your food. And you don't yell at them like some people do. Some people, they're so weird. 
They're just like hanging out of the car, just shouting at fast food people. Like, I don't know what you expect out of fast food, but when I get it, as long as like a bag of food arrives in my hand, it doesn't even have to be fast anymore. I've completely lost sense of what fast means or slow. The passage of time is mystified before my eyes. So as long as I get a bag of food, you know, and when I eat it, it doesn't kill me later, that's great. That's service rendered. And even if you did get bad service, these people, they're people. Treat them well. Understand that people make mistakes. And if you really need to get your fast food order changed, be nice about it. Everyone is in a hurry, and no one cares about your lunch. But they should, because you're an end and not a mean. Two, (laughs) fight for freedom. Fight for freedoms of people. Fight for your own freedom. You know, it's freedom of speech and stuff like that. There's something to be said for freedom of speech. A lot of people kind of want to mob up on people when they say things that they don't like. And there's something about that that is also a freedom of speech, right? That's kind of part of freedom of speech is the regulation of society, self-regulation. Like if you say something dastardly, like like uh, like McDonald's is better than Wendy's, people will rise up and they'll let you know that you're wrong. And that's how we self-educate. And that's how we align. And that's how we captain this here he, ship called humanity. But... You know, there's a line that's crossed when you censor people outright, you know? If people are saying something stupid and they won't stop saying something stupid, you got to let them keep saying that stupid thing even though you keep telling them it's stupid and they keep acknowledging that they hear that you told them that it's stupid. You got to let them say the stupid because it could turn out that you're stupid, you know? It's not far far out for somebody to perceive themselves as the deepest intellectual in American life, and then at the turn of an instant realize, hey, actually, I'm a dumbass. And this has happened in all halls of power, not just on the Twitter keyboard. So don't forget your freedoms. But also don't forget everyone else is free. So, (laughs) you know, take what you will with it. Number three, respect animals. Respect them. It has been proven that mammals have some sort of conscious experience of the world. Kyle is definitely conscious. He's a conscious creature. Well, not right now. He's passed out. He was snoring recently. He snores like like a little hippo. It's kind of cute, but sometimes I'm worried. Like, what do you do when a cat has sleep apnea? Should I, like, get some, get, like, a little cardboard teepee with a adhesive vents and try to pinch his nose open while he sleeps. I can't even get him to wear a hat. Perhaps he's getting a little chubby. I do have a treadmill we can run him on. David could train him. Take him to the vet, get his vitals taken. Turn that flab into fab. See, I just heard him I just heard him snore in the other room just now. I don't know if it got picked up on the mic, but trust me. He's over there snoring. 
So you got to respect animals. You know, don't be cruel. If you're cruel to animals, you know, that says something. It says, like, you like to lord over things. Or or you have a violence in you that must be satisfied. Or that you enjoy the satisfaction of the violence and don't feel the remorse of it. All things quite damning. But I wonder if this act uh, extends to, like, factory farming, all that stuff, because I got to tell you, half the time I eat something, I'm not like checking the frickin' label being like, oh, did this come from a tortured slaughterhouse or did, were they lovingly caressed as uh, life was snapped from their maw in an instant? Were they uh, held in cages? Were they held in the fields? Did they fly amongst the stars? Did they have a life that rivaled my own? Did they think, did they think of themselves as Kantian? Who knows? Number four, act from duty. Act from duty. And that's not about the duty that you're probably laughing about. And honestly, I've never called uh, crap or shit, excrement, duty. But every time I say duty... Like, it's my duty to do this, to do so. I think of it. I think of excrement. I've never once was like, oh, I gotta go make a duty. This is the first time I said that, right there, on mic. It's captured for you. But I've never, never ever in my life thought to say duty. It just seems, it seems like the window was very short. Like, maybe as a child, that's when you'd say duty. Because it's got to be before you can say shit. Because once shit takes over, shit is there for life. Once That's why I think parents don't like to see their kids swearing. Even though everyone knows it's inevitable that someone's going to start swearing. And when they're in the company of their peers, the vulgarity will come out. Everyone knows this. But they don't want to see their kids swearing. That's because they know as soon as shit moves in to that vocabulary, shit is taken off its shit shoes and putting its shit feet up on the shit ottoman and it's telling you to get him some shit and he's going to shit stay for the rest of your shit life. So acting from duty. That means like acting from a sense of, well, I'm doing this for someone else. I'm not just doing this for purely intrinsic selfish motives. Like art for it to eventually be art, has to be made with the thought that this will affect someone else the way I, I intended to infect them. Infect. Tended, tended to affect them. And even this podcast would go out to somebody with the intent that they would listen to it and love it. If you're... If you're applying your trade in the web design world, that you're making a website because you want people to view it and find the information and and be free in their information finding, like like a little dove acting from duty. Don't just do things. Don't just while away your time. Everyone's time is limited, and therefore we must all apply our trade in helping humanity. And this is something that. I actually suck at, if you wanted to know the truth. Acting from duty. Maybe it's because every time I say duty, I just think of 
shit, but more so because there's a little bit of a fear when acting for others, I think. There's a fear that what you're offering will be rejected. There's a fear that what you're offering won't be good. There's a fear, just particularly, that what you're offering will be counter to what you want to happen. That happens a lot with me, especially telling jokes. You know, I, I should really count how many times I tell a joke and people appreciate it versus get offended. See how the see how the balance is, because you know it's one thing. You know, you're gonna let off a few zingers that hit somebody in their eyeball, but it's another that like that seems to be the only place it goes. Like uh, David gets real triggered uh, when uh, when whores are brought up. <laughs> <laughs> see but i like it but if uh nobody else likes that fact <laughs> like david <laughs> then uh that's a problem you know but david's an end himself not just a means to the horror joke so i need to explain the horror joke is all just my uh ill will towards social media algorithms coming forth in the idea that I need to promote Scott Cast more. But, you know, I'm kind of happy with my 30 listeners. I don't need that glory of, like, those drooling masses over their TikToks, like, wetting their phones. Because I don't think that's where my impact is. So if I'm going to act from duty rather than excrement, i got to ply my trade in this little garden that I have tended my very small corner of the world. And that's where I want to make the greatest impact. And if there's something of mine that goes worldwide, like the next great American novel, The Great Scott Cast by Scott Krause and F. Scott Fitzgerald, then let it be. You know, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to like submit the way I want to create things to like the stricture of these social media algorithms where people are just like, it's always the least original people up at the top. And like, yeah, sure. There's like niche communities, but even within these niche communities, it's just gatekeeping and whoremongering. So I don't know. I'm, but I got to come up with some TikTok videos because technically the election demanded it. But anyway, I'm going into Scott cast territory. Let's go to number five now. Follow your inner moral compass. You know what? And that's what I'm talking about with this social media algorithm stuff. It would be so much easier for me to embrace social media. For me to just be the guy with a Facebook, be the guy with a Twitter and an Instagram and a TikTok and a Snapchat and a Wudu and a Weibo. And it would just be so much easier for me to be the guy who's like, Oh, here's the latest trend. Ah, this is how you game the system. Oh, make sure you like your post 30 seconds after post. Oh, fuck you. And fuck all the people who work in that industry. That's my inner moral compass. <laughs> you know? Because social media is literally the opposite of the first Kantian rule. Don't treat people as a means. Treat them as an end in itself, in themselves. And really... These platforms are designed just to be addictive, and that's it. Maximize time and page. There you are. Maximize time and app. That's why a lot of these apps actually uh, 
have their own internet browser instead of directing you to the built-in internet browser, which is always better because it's a full-fledged thing. Instead, they operate it within their ecosystem so that you can't go away. Everything is engineered to keep you arraigned in there like cattle. And then people are surprised that uh, it's a shit show. I mean, if it's a bunch of locked-in lunatics screaming to have their voice heard. And that comes to number six, never lie. Social media, when you're on it, everyone's a liar. <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's not true. But uh, never lie. That's Those are my feelings about social media. And never lie is a very difficult one to, to do, in my opinion, in the Kantian ethic realm. Because the lie can be anything. It could be white lies. It could be a problem of perception. I think... A good starting point is don't lie on purpose. <laughs> because it's the way people ooze words. I mean, you've heard me ooze words today. Things come out, and the words are not necessarily precipitated by reality, empirical reality. They're usually something drawn out of an imagination, an elixir in the soul. That could be anything. You know, it could be a midget on a wharf. And see, I don't, I've never seen a midget on a wharf. I'm not even sure what a wharf is, but there it is. I said it. Is that a lie? I don't know. I mean, according to me, I've never seen a midget on a wharf. So, and I don't even know what a wharf is. So what gives me ground to say the noun phrase midget on a wharf? That could be a lie. Because it's not true. And if and if an lie is a, an untruth, then that fits that description. Midget on a wharf. So start small. Number seven: become worthy of happiness. This is a Kantian moral ethic. This is a little different from what we're normally told that we're all worthy of happiness intrinsically. And this is, oh no, actually no, you should become worthy of happiness. Don't just sit around and be like, oh, well, I'm done. Because that's kind of what I've been experiencing lately. Uh, I've had it quite easy in these times, you know, compared to a lot of people. And what do I do about it? A lot of the time I'll isolate and not keep up with people. But I shouldn't be doing that. Because what if they could use my help? If I'm doing well, then I should make it a point to see how I can assist. Always wear yourself out by the end of the day. Number eight, don't base morality on religion or politics. That's a great one. A lot of people, they just pick a team, and whatever the team says or needs, that's where your moral compass is aligned. And it takes a lot of cognitive load off of most people. You know, a lot of people, they get into religion or something or politics, and it seems like it increases the cognitive load, but it's just because they want to have more conviction, I think. To really have a morality, you got to follow your own moral inner compass, your own interior moral life. And a lot of these religions and politi politicians, like, they want to make rules so that a group will come together and do one thing which is noble and fine in its own end, but 
it shouldn't be where you draw your morality. Because along a, along a certain line, you can't trust organized groups of people. Because people are social animals. There's a lot of little tricks in our mind that get us to follow one group compared to another. And you can't just simply say to yourself, oh, well, well, I won't do that. I won't follow a group heedlessly. I won't ascribe my brain to them. But it's all too easy, especially with the lure of not having to think for yourself. Very easy. Number nine, don't let others step on you. Don't become a doormat. Do I be, am I a doormat? Sometimes I think I'm a doormat. You know, like if somebody comes up to me and says they need something, I'll do whatever it takes to fix it. But at the same time, I also isolate. I think because I know if I, if I know someone needs my help, they're going to ask for it. And then I'm going to have to help because I'm enslaved to that social contract, that social moment. And that's not moral. That's cowardly. You should be in charge of your own destiny and understand your own will. And at that point, seek out help helping others. And it's a lot easier to go out of your... to, to purposefully set forth and help someone than to remain in some sort of uh, stasis reacting to things that fall in your orbit. Venture forth. Choose your own path, whether it's the well-trodden one or the path less taken. What you shouldn't do is just stand there. And finally, number 10, get busy living or get busy dying. Woo! Fuck yeah, cunt. Get busy living. I think I alluded to this for a sentence earlier today, but we all have a short lifespan on this earth compared to the amount of good we can do for the people around us. But a lot of the time, we just sit around and do nothing. At least I know I do. And I think a lot of the time, a lot of the friends I know, a lot of the people I know, they're pretty good at getting busy living. Ian's got a wonderful job in a field he loves and respects and wants to ply his trade in. David as well. Sabal. Things are tough for everyone. But as far as I see... All my friends seem to be applying as much or more effort. Me, on the other hand, I judge myself harshly. But here I am also. I'm writing my book. I have all sorts of notes. I've got a note-taking device coming in, and I just completed this whole podcast on my own. And you just got a huge crash course in Kantian ethics. You can be cunty now. You should be cunty. Go forth in this world as the cunt you are in the inside. Emmanuel cunt. And that's today's, uh, what is it, from the desk of the sound guy? It's been fun being here. You know, it's been fun talking at you. Let me know if uh, you wanted me to organize a few more of these episodes. I could sprinkle them in every once in a while. Pretty soon we're going to have Fan favorite Ian on. We're gonna have Sneaky D on again. Pod King, Sneaky D, the Dread Pod King, and we're gonna exercise our ability to banter without current events 
Ooh. <laughs> Tantalizing. All right. So I'm going to end it. Uh, All Hail Pod King, the Dread Pod King, Sneaky D. From all of us at the super colorful original telecommunicated transmission, otherwise known as Scottcast, I bid thee adieu. See you later, Scottcastigators. Mm-hmm.